0: This evening, Uh, we're going to take a few moments here together and uh, meditate on this passage of scripture that's been read for us uh, throughout our our singing, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Um, Luke 2 is a familiar passage for us, to be sure. It's one we've probably heard read many times, at least if we've grown up in a context of Christian worship over the holidays. Uh, Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel that he wrote this account of Jesus' life so that his readers... Uh, can know for certain what's really true about Jesus. And especially as we're at the very center of the Christmas season right now, uh, no doubt this is a relevant consideration for us. We can be asking questions like, who is this Jesus really? We need to be certain about who this Jesus is. Uh, During this time of year, we can be walking through the grocery store and Christmas music is playing. and, And while the first song we hear might be White Christmas and the lyrics are all about dreaming of snow and childhood nostalgia... Uh, pretty soon that song finishes and Joy to the World comes on and all of a sudden we have these lyrics about the Lord who's come or hark the herald angels sing and, and the speakers are, are resounding this glory to the newborn king and we wonder what, what are these songs really about? What's really true about this Jesus whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time? And that's precisely where Luke comes in and helps us with his account of things. In chapter 2 of his gospel, uh, we have this account from Luke of Jesus' birth. And as we think well about what Luke tells us, we can be uplifted as we more clearly understand the significance of what it means that Christ has been born and that he's been born uh, into the circumstances in which he came. Uh, So here it is, Christmas Eve. What should we believe about this particular night? What what should we believe as we uh, consider well the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in our verses, uh, Luke does tell us, first of all, about the specific social circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. If you remember that section from what Kristen read for us, we have this in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And in those verses, Luke tells us how this decree from Caesar Augustus has gone out that required the whole Roman world to be registered. Uh, In those days, we know that Roman Empire was far-reaching. Caesar Augustus, uh, history records for us, he's not only a, a politically charged individual, but he was quite the political administrator. Uh, He wanted to have an accounting of all the people under Roman rule, so it's no surprise we read what we do in this text where uh, Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, very pregnant at the time, and Joseph, to whom she was engaged, they are required by this Roman decree to make the 90-mile journey from Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem, which was Joseph's town of family origin. Uh, That's where they needed to go to complete this registration process. And so in this, Luke makes clear to us that Jesus was born into ongoing political and social circumstances. The world was going on as the world always goes on. Those in leadership are making decrees, and the people's lives were altered by them. Uh, We may be living 2,000 years later, but certainly we can identify with these kinds of circumstances. They're not unfamiliar to us. Uh, So Mary and Joseph, they come to Bethlehem. and, And while they're in Bethlehem, we read that the time came for Mary to give birth. So Luke tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that really is such a sentence to read, isn't it? This child whom the angel Gabriel had told Mary would be the son of the Most High, back in Luke chapter 1, the son of the Most High, here he is born, and Luke gives it to us in a sentence. But it's a sentence that's packed with significance. For example, the word translated in here, it's not the the regular Greek word for a motel-type place to stay. Really, that word that's used here is a word that describes a guest room in a friend's or a family's home. Uh, While there were public motel-type places to stay during this time, those places were few and far between, and often they were very unsafe. And so, in the culture of the day, it was expected that if travelers uh, were coming into town from out of town, they would be able to stay with relatives uh, who had homes in those places or friends. And there's no doubt, of course, that Joseph had family in town. After all, that's why they had to go to Bethlehem to begin with. This was his town of family origin. And yet here we're told that there was no guest room available for him in the home of his family members. Uh, Certainly his family members descended on Bethlehem because of the census. We could see how guest rooms would have gone quickly. Homes would have filled up. Uh, But it helps us to know that in the social structures of the day... Guest rooms in family homes didn't go on a first come, first serve kind of basis. Instead, the guest rooms in family homes were open to you based on your social status within the family. And here's Joseph uh, with a very pregnant fiance. And while we know that Mary was pregnant by the miraculous work of God, for those looking on, it was socially and religiously very unacceptable to be pregnant in the fiancé position that Joseph was in. Here he is, unmarried, but with a pregnant bride-to-be. Joseph would have been seen as a disgrace to his family. And that's why we read what we read here. There's no room for Joseph and Mary in the family's guest rooms. Whatever the family status may have been that Joseph enjoyed at one time, he'd now fallen to the lowest position since he'd remained committed to Mary um, during her pregnancy. And so, with their uh, shameful social status, came low-status lodging in the homes. Instead of a guest room, Mary and Joseph were given space where the animals slept. Uh, Often this was an open-air room that was joined to one of the sides of the houses. And so it was in this stable area attached to the home that Jesus was born and then laid in a feeding trough. So here's the the high king of the universe, born in the lowest, uh, most humiliating circumstances in Bethlehem. So the old poem goes, uh, See in yonder manger low, born for us on earth below, Low within a manger lies he who built the starry sky." And in this, Luke tells us about the social circumstances of Christ's birth. He was born in the midst of the political realities of his day, and he was born in the shamed lodgings of a shelter for animals. Jesus didn't arrive high and proud. He came into this world low and humble, which, just like the prophets foretold, was the posture of this low-born king, and it would continue to be his posture during his earthly ministry. The one who would be born in the disrepute of an animal stall would also be the one who would one day hang on a disgraceful Roman cross bearing our shame. So here Luke gives us some of the social circumstances of Jesus' birth. And then in the next section of verses, we move from from the social circumstances of Jesus' birth to this angelic announcement about Jesus' birth. So on this particular night, the shepherds were told they were out in the field and they were doing their job. The night is dark as nights tend to be, and the shepherds are out there watching over their flock. Until that is, an angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds. And along with this angel's appearance, we're told that the glory of of God, so this, this radiant brightness that represents the eternal majesty and worthiness and presence of God, that glory of God shines all around the shepherds as this angel appears. And as a result, we read how the shepherds were terrified. And that's not surprising. We'd be terrified, too, to have an angel show up with this radiant light of God's majesty all around him. Angels in the scriptures, we know they're not Cupid-looking uh, little greeting card figures. No, angels are God's celestial warriors. They, they're scary in appearance. And here an angel appears to the shepherds, and he has to tell them not to be afraid. Fear not, he says. And then the announcement is made. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel tells the shepherd how they'll find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And before the shepherds have a chance to recover this uh, from this angelic and and divinely glorious announcement, uh, Luke tells us that a whole host of angels then fills the sky. Uh, The word translated host in our text is that technical Greek term for for a military unit. So so in this case, we have a very large military unit. We have a multitude, Luke says, of God's angelic warriors appearing in the sky. It's it's like the the angelic army's been waiting in anticipation of Jesus' birth, just looking over the edge of the heavenly realm, and now they appear and break out in this song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. So this angelic announcement is made. This song is sung. And in all the weightiness of this situation, which is extraordinarily weighty just to imagine the glory of what this must have represented, in all of this, we just can't miss the fact that this divine, glory-filled, angelic announcement of Jesus' birth is made to shepherds. Not to Caesar in his palace, who's making rules, moving people all across the countryside. Not to Caesar in his palace. Not to the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. To shepherds in the darkness of their fields. Culturally, we know during this time shepherds were a despised group. They were were fairly transient because of their work and, and many of them proved untrustworthy. In fact, in Jewish culture, shepherds were often lumped in with tax collectors as the lowest rung of society. They weren't even allowed to testify in courts. Um, But on the night when God's long-promised Savior King is born, to whom does the announcement come? Well, the baby born in a humble condition is first revealed to those who are in a low condition themselves. The good news about Jesus doesn't come first to the local Bible teachers or political leaders or social elites. The angelic armies of heaven, accompanied by the very glory of the living God, this announcement of peace with God through Jesus Christ comes to those who are on the fringes, comes to those who are disregarded, comes to those who are low. And it's worth our meditation on this, uh, this evening just as we think about this Christmas season and what it means to consider the truth of Christ's coming. I wonder if you feel yourself to be low this Christmas. We can be in a discouraged position for a number of different reasons. We can even find ourselves despised by those around us for a number of reasons. And that discouraged position can mean different and very hard things for us. But it can also mean something quite glorious. Because as it turns out, Being in a despised condition, this lowness is actually the prerequisite to be worthy of the announcement of Jesus' birth. So so this angelic announcement comes, and it comes to the low and the outcast, these shepherds tending their flocks. And then in the last section, we read in verses 15 to 20, there are a few responses to all this. In fact, there are a number. We'll just consider two of them. But first of all, obviously, the shepherds respond. They say, let's go see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. They go and see, which is really quite an amazing response. I think if it were me, I'd want to go tell everybody I knew about this whole angel experience. I mean, certainly the podcast would want to interview you right away, and you'd want to let everybody know about all these amazing spiritual experiences that you just had. But these shepherds don't do that. The shepherds, they want to go and see Jesus. And that can very much be a response we need to identify with ourselves. Here's what's true about Jesus being born. He's the one we need to go and see. Of course, we can't go see Jesus in a stable room in Bethlehem. But we can come to him in the quietnesses of our own room, can't we? And say things like, Lord Jesus, I'm told you're the Savior of the world. Would you reveal yourself to me? I'd like to see you for who you really are. I'd like to know you as the long-promised Savior King who's come to bring redemption. Maybe the shepherd's response reflects your own need to respond this evening. You need to go and see, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 400th time, you need to go to Christ and say, make known to me who you really are, Lord Jesus. Or maybe in all this, it's Mary's response that's more fitting. Uh, The shepherds uh, come in verse 17, and we read that they made known to Mary the saying that had been told them. So they, joined Mary, they told Mary all about what the angels had said and sang about. They told Mary how Jesus is this, the Savior and the Lord, the one who's going to bring peace. They recount this whole event to her. And Mary responds to that. We read how Mary responds by treasuring up these things, pondering them in her heart. And again, this is a worthwhile consideration for us as well. Mary is giving careful thought to what she's learning about this baby in the manger. That this child is the one who will be- bring peace. And peace, uh, certainly that is something that's so far removed, isn't it? At least it feels so far removed from us. Personally, uh, we we so often know despair and fear instead of peace. Nationally, we we read our news feeds, we experience division instead of peace at a national level. In family life, we can experience strife instead of peace. In all these ways, we know what it is to be distanced from genuine rest and genuine wholeness and genuine well-being. But what we also begin to recognize is that all this lack of peace within us and around us ultimately exists because we don't have peace on a cosmic level. Our condition as humanity isn't, first of all, that we're humanity against humanity. Our condition is that we're humanity against divinity. On earth, there is no peace because there is no peace with God. We've gone contrary to His ways. We've called wrong what He calls good. We've called good what He calls wrong. We're in opposition to the Creator Himself, which is, which is a terrifying reality, to be at enmity with the God who puts my very breath in my mouth. Except with this God, whom we've grievously offended, that the great truth of Christmas is that this is also the God who abounds in mercy. He superabounds in kindness that the peace we ultimately need is beyond anything we could ever produce, but it's not beyond the scope of God's provision. Jesus came, and in His coming, Jesus lived a perfect life, and He offered that life on the cross, taking the burden of our debt of sin against God upon Himself, so that all who trust in Him don't find themselves counted as God's enemies, but instead are brought into God's own family. Mary pondered the peace that's offered through the person of Jesus. And so when it comes to the truth of Christmas and the truth about Jesus, uh, there's nothing really greater we can do than, than go and see Jesus, understand Him for who He is, seek Him out from the Scriptures, pray to Him and ask Him to reveal Himself to us. And in all of that, pondering the peace that only He can bring. The one who comes from God, the one who brings reconciliation, the one who takes our sin upon himself ultimately, rising again to promise us life eternal. This is the Christ we hope in, and this is the Christ who came at Christmas time. And in this, we can find ourselves joining with the angels and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, because Jesus has come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do desire to know the peace that only Christ can bring, and we pray that you would quicken our hearts to rest in that. Uh, For those of us, O Lord, who know you, uh, may our hearts be turned towards you continually and renewed in the truth of Jesus' work and sacrifice. And Father, uh, for those who may be here and don't know you, would you quicken hearts in order that we can see all the glory and wonder and love that is reflected in the fact that your own Son came, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. We ask that this would be the case for your honor and glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.